أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وآله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا وبعده So just to recap we said the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was commanded to convey the message and for the first time the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم publicly announces the message to the people of Mecca and this spirals into a number of things first the response the negative response of Abu Lahab which we said sort of aborted the whole beautiful scene that the Prophet ﷺ created in order to convey the message and use the surprise element in his da'wah to the people of Mecca. The response of Abu Lahab really depleted a lot of these uh, uh, positive consequences if they were to happen. And uh, we said the Prophet ﷺ, uh, as well uh, made an invitation specifically to the household of uh, Abu Talib so the children of Abu Talib the family of Abu Talib and he gave them a specific invitation and although they say as they saw a sign from the Prophet ﷺ, still they did not believe and the only one who shook the hands of the Prophet ﷺ in that meeting was Ali ibn Abi Talib anhu. and we said <coughs> there were some People of Mecca started to treat the Prophet ﷺ, uh, in a disrespectful way. Some of them were very audacious and they were bold and aggressive in their approach to the Prophet. ﷺ. But still, the Prophet ﷺ was under the protection of his family. No one could really seriously harm the Prophet because they would expect or they would fear retaliation. The same was with Abu Bakr because <coughs> his uh, clan, Banu Tamim protected him and would fight for him and this was one of the good aspects that remained there in the lives of the Arabs uh, after that time <coughs> not all the Muslims were exposed not all the Muslims were exposed so although we say this is the open uh, stage or phase in da'wah yet not all the Muslims were exposed as Muslims not everyone was known because those who had no protection it was such a great risk for them to show their Islam or make their Islam public. Uh, so the ones who really became known to be Muslims was the Prophet وسلم, as Abdullah bin Mas'ud says, man Islamuhu sab'a. The first ones to, that their Islam became public were seven people. The Prophet وسلم, Abu Bakr, Ammar ibn Yasir, Ummuhu Sumayya, his mother Sumayya, Suhaib, Suhaib al-Rumi, Bilal, Wal-Miqdad. As to the Prophet ﷺ, he was protected by his uncle Abu Talib and obviously his children. Abu Bakr was protected by his own clan. The others were taken by the people of Mecca and they made for them clothing of iron to torture them with basically chains shackles all shapes and forms to uh, torture them الشمس, and they scorched them under the sun they kept them kept them under the heat of the sun these ones who were taken and tortured they all gave in 
they all gave to people of Quraysh whatever they wanted to hear. So they said, say we disbelieve in Allah. They said, we disbelieve in Allah. Say Muhammad is not the messenger of Allah. They said Muhammad is not the messenger of Allah. With Ammar ibn Yasser specifically, because there was a narration here, they actually made him curse the Prophet And he did. And he did. And he came to the Prophet And he said, oh messenger of Allah, I've, I've destroyed myself. So when the Prophet inquired, he told him that they tortured me and they forced me to curse you. And I did. And the Prophet says, How do you find your heart? He said, Mutma'innan bil iman. He said, I find it in peace when it comes to iman. It's full of iman. The Prophet ﷺ, if they go back, if they catch you again, they torture you again, they force you again, curse me again. No problem. No problem. Because you are being forced. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa revealed the verse, Illa man ukriha those who leave faith or those who denounce faith okay they will be destroyed except for those Allah says have been forced into it so out because of they were forced they just had they had to say it but they didn't mean it when their hearts are full with iman so this is why the scholars actually took from this specifically just to, to take a practical uh, conclusion from this the scholars said uh, someone who says kufr, someone who says a, bl a blasphemy, blasphemous word, something that has kufr in it, is not necessarily a kafir. Is not necessarily a, not everyone who pronounces kufr is a kafir. Not unless they mean it. Unless they have a choice. But if someone is forced into it, no, they're not a kafir. Or and and unless they know what it means, because some people say words of kufr but they don't really understand that these are words of kufr so we cannot automatically declare them to be kafir okay so these ones they were taken and they were uh, forced to denounce islam and denounce the prophet illa bilal except for bilal except for bilal he did not give them what they wanted bilal did not give in he did not denounce islam they tortured him probably the, the most, yet he did not give in. And he sort of gave himself for the sake of Allah. He gave himself for the sake of Allah. And his people humiliated him, the people of Quraysh. They gave him to the youngsters to play with him. After torturing him, they gave handed him to the youngsters and the youngsters tied him with a rope and they started dragging him in the streets of Mecca. So his body was being dragged through the streets of Mecca. Or what he says, Allah is one. Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas was asked, أَكَانَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ يَبْلُغُونَ مِنْ أَصْحَابِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم مِنَ الْعَذَابِ مَا يُعْذَرُونَ بِهِ فِي تَرْكِ دِينِهِمْ He was asked one day, did the people of Quraysh, did they torture the Muslims, the early Muslims, to an extent where they had an excuse to give up their faith publicly at least, like pronounce disbelief in the sense? He said, Naam wallahi, in kanu layadribuna ahadahum, wayuji'unahu, wayu'atishunahu, hatta ma yaqdiru an yastawiya jalisam min shiddati al-durri alladhi bihi. He said, yes indeed, they would take someone and beat him up 
and starve him and deprive him of water until he reaches a point where he could not even sit up. They could not even, one of them could not even sit up. Until he yields and he gives in and he says whatever they want. Basically saying something that is disbelief, something that is kufr. Until it gets to a point where they tell him, they say, Allah and Al-Uzza are true gods and Allah is not. And he would say yes. These are the early Muslims. The early Muslims. They would just try to ransom themselves and free themselves by saying these words of kufr because they want to get away from these people. So this is just an insight into the torture that these people went through. One of the families that were, was tortured entirely was the family of Ammar bin Yasir. His father, Yasir, and his mother, Sumayya bin Tukhayyat. They were all taken, the three of them, the parents and their son. The parents were, were older people, senior people, to the point where the Prophet one day passed by them. He walked by them and he saw Yasir, the father of Ammar, an old man. One of the narrations indicate that he opened his eyes and his eyebrows were thick and he could hardly lift them. He could hardly lift them because he was exhausted of the torture. An old man being tortured, put in the sun for days, being whipped or, and being tortured, different types of torture, deprived of food and water and so on and so forth in his old age. So the Prophet passes by him, he lifts one of his eyebrows with so much difficulty and he sees the Prophet ﷺ in front of him. So what does he say? He says, Ya Rasulallah, addahraha kada. He says, O Messenger of Allah, we would stay like this even if it takes eternity. If in a, even if it's till the end of our lives, the last breath. We're going to stay firm. That's what he says. Ya Rasulallah, addahraha kada. So the Prophet ﷺ says, Abshiru ala yasir, fa'inna mu'idakum al-jannah. He says, O family of Yasir, give you glad tidings. Your appointment with Allah is in Jannah. This is a, 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 you know, glad tidings from Allah subhanahu wa arrived directly through the Prophet to this family. So this man, despite being at an old age, vulnerable, and people at that time would seek ease, yet this man did not mind going through all this hardship and he would still have this kind of resilient attitude that he would say oh, oh messenger of Allah would stay like this would stay firm even till the last breath uh, his wife Sumayya the mother of Ammar was also an old older woman she was tortured severely by specifically Abu Jahl these people were from Quraysh yet because they were poor they were from a lower caste, they were treated like that. And so the woman was tortured severely without any respect for her being a woman. So she was tortured severely and it got to a point where Abu Jahl became very angry with her and the way he killed her was in a nasty way. He basically stabbed her with his, with his spear in her private parts and he left her bleed to death. No morality, no ethics, no principles, nothing. Just because she wants to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. 
Who was she killed in front of? Her husband and her son. She was killed in front of her husband and her son. Her son in that in that way. So she was actually she's considered to be the first martyr in Islam. The first shaheed. First one to be martyred. <clears throat> Not only those people, some of the people were really like tortured by the early people of Mecca. And this gives us an insight into what the Muslims had to go through during the early stages of uh, spreading the da'wah of Islam and sharing it with the people of Mecca. We have, we have Khabbab ibn al-Arat. Khabbab ibn al-Arat was a handyman. He was a craftsman. He would do, you know, uh, handy jobs, whatever, like uh, carpentry, uh, you know, fixing things, uh, manufacturing simple things, and so on and so forth. He was that kind of person. So he says, I, was, I became a Muslim, and I was um, a handyman. And... Uh, one of the main leaders in Mecca, his name was Al-As ibn Wa'il. Al-As ibn Wa'il. So he says, I did some work for him and he, was, he owed me so much money. So I came to him and I said, I came to ask for my money to give, so, so that he gives it to me. So he says, then he says to me, I will not give you your money until you disbelieve in Muhammad. You see the, what kind of a low level they would stoop to? I would not give you your money, your due, until you disbelieve in Muhammad. So Khabab al-Arat being just a normal person, he's speaking to one of the leaders. He says to him, Wallahi la akfuru bihi abadan hatta tamuta thumma tubath. He says, I will not disbelieve in Muhammad until you die and you're resurrected. And obviously you deal with the consequences of that. So Al-As, a very arrogant man, he doesn't care about that. So he says, فَإِنِّي إِنْ بُعِثْتُ كَانَ لِي مَالٌ he says, okay, when I die, I will get so much money and I'll have so many children. Then you come to me and only then I will give you your money. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so Allah says, don't you see or haven't you seen the one who disbelieved in our signs and our verses? And then he said, I shall be given after death money, wealth and children. Allah says, has he seen the unseen? Does he know the unseen? Does he, has, does he have access to the unseen? Or have we given him some kind of a promise? On what basis he's saying this? He's speaking. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no. He shall return back to us. And everything he possesses shall return back to us. Then he shall see his true worth. So, Al-Khabbab ibn Arat probably like, it's basically the race is between two people. Khabbab ibn Arat and Bilal. Who was tortured the most among the early Muslims? Really, the the the... The race is between these two people who was tortured the most. So Khabbab al-Arat also had a lot of people in Mecca owed him some money for the work that he did. None of them paid him. Not only that, some people, they actually took some of his possessions, some of his money, liquid money, they took it. He, they confiscated it just because he was a Muslim. Uh, <clears throat> so we said Bilal, 
radiyallahu anhu Bilal ibn Rabah radiyallahu anhu Khabab ibn Arat They are the ones who compete To be the ones who were tortured the most By the people of Mecca And none of them gave in These two, none of them gave in Khabab ibn Arat They wanted him to uh, You know, denounce faith Denounce the Prophet sallallahu And speak bad about Allah and the Quran He refused Do you know what, what they did to him? He says They lit up a huge fire for me then they stripped me naked and they put my back on top of the fire and then they left me to lie on my back straight on the fire until the uh, the fat under my skin in my back melted and i could see it then he says another narration he said they took me because one day the companions were actually speaking later on, that's in Medina. The companions were speaking about the predicament of Bilal radiallahu anhu. Bilal, he was tortured, we said he was tortured severely. He was treated like no one else as well. But we said the one who competes with him is Khabab al-Arat. So the companions were speaking about the torture of Bilal and how it was. Khabab al-Arat at that moment he says, well it was severe, but you guys have not seen what happened to me. And then he takes off his shirt and he shows them their ba his back. His back was... Like it was, it was mutilated. It was like a map. It has so many different things in it, so many scars and uh, and uh, you know all these uh, marks of torture. Then he says, one day, the, one of the days that I was tortured, these people of Mecca they took me, and they lit a fire until it became hot coal. Then they straight away they put my back on it. And one of them started jumping on my chest. And he said, nothing put out the fire except the fat of my back melting on it. In other words, they were doing barbecue. They were barbecuing him. That's exactly what they did to him. And he never gave in. He never gave in. Yet, Khabab al-Arati is the one who came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he was in the shade of the Kaaba and he says, Ya Rasulallah, ala tastansiru lana, ala tad'ullaha lana. He says, O Messenger of Allah, why didn't you seek help from Allah to help us? Why didn't you make dua that Allah you know, gets us out of this calamity? The Prophet Sallallahu was leaning on his side. He stood up straight and then he starts speaking to Khabab al-Arat. That's Khabab who went through all of this. The Prophet says, the people who came before you, they were tortured more severely. A person would be brought and they would bring a saw and they would cut him into two pieces, saw him into two pieces, alive, until he splits into two halves, right from the middle of his head, throughout his body, split him into two halves. And he would not give up his faith. And they would bring a person and bring uh, combs of iron and comb away his flesh and his nerves away from his bones and he would not give up his faith then the prophet ﷺ turns to khabab al-arad and he says then he says wallahi layutimanna allahu hadha al-amr hatta yasira al-raqibu min san'a'a ila hadra maut la yakhafu illa allah wadhi'ibu ala ghanamihi allah shall complete this affair and establish it and make it manifest until a person would travel from Sana'a to Hadramaut, two cities in Yemen, fearing none but Allah, fearing no oppression, no oppression, no attacks from anyone, 
fearing only Allah and fearing the wolf that might attack his sheep. That's the only fear that people would have at that time. Why? Because that means Islam is going to bring peace and security to people and stability. Then the Prophet says to him, But oh people, you're hasty. Now the Prophet is not objecting to making dua. He's not objecting to asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help the Muslims. Not. But he saw some haste. And the Prophet understood deeply that we have to go through this phase if we are to be established. We just have to go through this phase. It doesn't mean we don't call upon Allah, but we call upon Allah. But it seems the Prophet saw some level of impatience that wasn't acceptable. That wasn't acceptable. Because when someone is very impatient, it shows that this person is running out of patience. And that means a person could make, maybe this person would not be able to put up with more difficulty. So a believer, when they go through a calamity, yes, we, we try to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We try to see the end of it. But still, we should uh, muster enough patience to live with that, regardless of how long it drags. Because only Allah knows how long this needs to be there for. So the Prophet ﷺ spoke to Khabab Narat in that, uh, I would say, very straightforward way just to wake him up. Wake him up, yes. What you, that's not to put down or undermine the intensity of the torture that they were going through or the suffering. That's not lack of sympathy. But the Prophet ﷺ was pointing to something else here that you guys need to see that beyond your immediate you know, predicament and situation. Bilal radiallahu anhu as well suffered a lot. We said they used to put huge stones on his chest. They would bring a massive rock and place it on his chest to the point where he could not, not breathe. He was squashed under, under that. Yet he would not say a word of kufr. All what he would say, ahadun ahad. And he, was he was severely punished as we said. He was humiliated until it got to a point where Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu like, decided to you know put an end to this and uh, Bilal was a slave and his master was who was the master Umayyah ibn Khalaf Umayyah ibn Khalaf remember that name Umayyah ibn Khalaf there is a there will come inshallah in in the future some funny stories about Umayyah ibn Khalaf so keep him in mind okay so Umayyah ibn Khalaf was the master of Bilal he was the one torturing Bilal mercilessly so Abu Bakr decides to go and buy Bilal buy him off Umayyah and free him and Abu Bakr was a businessman so he had some wealth so he goes to uh, Umayyah ibn Khalaf some narrations historical narrations indicate that he actually gave a big price offered a big price and Umayyah ibn Khalaf asked for more he said increase add, add more I want more for him so Abu, Bilal, uh, Abu Bakr kept increasing and increasing and putting more money in that deal until Umayyah said, okay, I'll give him to you. And then when they finalized the deal, Umayyah ibn Khalaf said, you know, I don't think it was, it was a wise thing from you, Abu Bakr, to pay all this money. Really, if you just took the first price, I would have given, I, I would have just given him to you. Abu Bakr said, if I had more money, if I could afford it, I would still pay more. Because he's worth much more than what you think. So he strikes a deal with him, he gives him the money, then he goes and searches for Bilal in that area where they used to torture him. But he doesn't see Bilal. 
he doesn't see Bilal radiyallahu anhu. So he searches for Bilal and guess what? He finds him buried under a, under a pile of stones. He finds him buried, completely buried, under a, under a huge pile of stones. That's how where he finds him. Uh, so then he, alhamdulillah, he frees him and Bilal becomes a free man and he's a Muslim. And this is why Umar al-Khattab later on, he says, Abu Bakrin, Sayyiduna. Abu Bakr is our master. He's our master. وَأَعْتَقَ سَيِّدَنَا And he freed our master, Bilal. That's Umar ibn Khattab speaking about Abu Bakr and about Bilal رضي الله عنهم جميعا. So a lot of these uh, <coughs> people of Quraysh, specifically, there were seven people among Quraysh they were very aggressive against Muslims, extremely aggressive against Muslims. Among them was obviously Abu Lahab, uh, Abu Lahab, Abu Jahl, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt, Shayba ibn Rabi'ah, Wa Utba ibn Rabi'ah, Wal Walid ibn Utba. Okay, it's these people. The most difficult two of the most difficult and the most aggressive and open about their enmity to the Muslims were Abu Jahl and Umar ibn al-Khattab who was a non-Muslim at the time. These were probably the most aggressive against the Muslims. Abu Jahl whose name is Amr ibn Hisham and Umar ibn al-Khattab very aggressive against the, against the Muslims. So the Prophet makes a dua, makes a dua. He says, Allahumma unsur al-Islam bi ahabbi hadayn al-rajulayn ilayk. O Allah, give victory to Islam by means of the, the one that you love the most or the one that you're going to love from among these two people. Amr ibn Hisham or Amr ibn Khattab. Either Abu Jahl or Amr ibn Khattab. Imagine, I, just will, I want you to, to just see the level of hope the Prophet ﷺ had, these were the most aggressive people against the Muslims, yet the Prophet ﷺ is making dua, Oh Allah, choose one of them to give victory to Islam. That's how hopeful the Prophet ﷺ was. If someone is desperate, they would say, Oh Allah, just destroy them. Oh Allah, you know, cause them to die. Oh Allah, send a punishment upon them. Yet the Prophet ﷺ was saying, these are the two aggressive people, most aggressive people. The Prophet ﷺ is saying, Oh Allah, give victory to Islam by means of one of them, the one that is dearer to you from among these two people. So obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses Umar ibn Khattab anhu. Let's see what Umar ibn Khattab, some of the things Umar ibn Khattab anhu did. Uh, <coughs> You remember we spoke previously about a man, we said there was a man in Mecca prior to uh, the revelation. He was in Mecca, he used to say to the people of Mecca, Wallahi ya Quraysh, ma minkum ahadun ala millati Ibrahim illa ana. He used to say to the people of Mecca, none of you is upon the religion of Ibrahim except for me. And he used to hear about any family who had a baby girl and he feared that they might get rid of her or kill her, that he would go and take her and look after her until she grows and becomes an adult. Okay, and he's the one who traveled to find out the religion of Ibrahim alayhi Do you remember him? What was his name? 
اكسلنت زيد ابن عمرو ابن نفيل زيد ابن عمرو ابن نفيل وي سيد هي هاز ا سن سو زيد ابن عمرو ابن نفيل دايد بيفور ذا بروفيت صلى الله عليه وسلم بيكيم ا ماسنجر ذي ميت بت ات واز بيفور ذا بروفيت صلى الله عليه وسلم بيكيم ا ماسنجر سو زيد ابن عمرو ابن نفيل هاز ا سن هوز هيز سن سعيد سعيد ابن زيد هوز ون اوف ذي 10 بروميست بارادايس سعيد ابن زيد العشر المبشرون بالجنه سعيد ابن زيد Before Islam, he was married. He was Umar, Umar's brother-in-law. He married the sister of Umar ibn Khattab, Fatima. He married her. And they both became Muslim. So he says, Sa'id ibn Zayd, he says, Wallahi laqad ra'aytuni wa inna umara lamuthiqi wa ukhtahu ala al-islami qabla an yuslima Umar. He says, Wallahi, before, like previously, Umar al-Khattab shackled us both, me and his sister, because we were Muslims. He chained us. He actually, actually, he crucified them to the wall. <laughs> That's what he did. He crucified them to the wall, and he used to beat them. He used to beat them because they were Muslim. And Umar al-Khattab one day, uh, actually going to talk about something that Umar al-Khattab uh, says, because <clears throat> around this time, or maybe a bit later on, when it became very difficult for the Muslims, more Muslims were found out. So people of Quraysh finding out, oh, okay, these are Muslims in secret. So they started actually to investigate some kind of an inquisition, trying to find out who's secretly Muslim and take these people and torture them. So it became very difficult to the, for the Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ finally decided to give a way out to some of this, to the Muslims. He said, whoever is able to migrate or to travel to Al-Habasha, Abyssinia, there is a king there. No one in the land of this man experiences injustice. So he's a just person, just king. Go to his land and practice your religion there. Some of the Muslims start traveling. They actually start traveling. So the point here is what? What is the point? Is it because they're Christian or because they're a Jew or because of the financial state? No. The Prophet said there, said go there. Why? Because of justice. Because of justice. No one is treated unjustly with that man, with that king. So he treats people justly. And that's what, this is where Islam grows. Islam grows with a lot of justice. Muslims can practice their religion with justice, when there is justice. So, Some of those Muslims started to uh, migrate to, uh, to Abyssinia and one of those families, one of those uh, women was a woman called Ummu Abdullah. Her, her nickname is Ummu Abdullah. Her husband is Amir ibn Rabi'ah. These were some of the early Muslims. So they were actually getting themselves ready. They were packing their uh, stuff. And her husband went to do finish some business and come back, and they would they were ready to set out towards Abyssinia. As she was waiting for her husband, Umar al-Khattab passes by her, and obviously the just the scene of Umar al-Khattab is frightening to these early Muslims. But now she was just leaving, so he doesn't care anymore. So Umar al-Khattab comes to her, and 
he says basically that she narrates the story. She says, "Kana Umar ibn Khattab min ashad al-nas alayna fi Islamina." Umar ibn Khattab was one of the most aggressive against us because of our Islam. فَلَمَّا تَهَيَّأْنَا لِلْخُرُوجِ إِلَىٰ أَرْضِ الْحَبَشَةِ When we were getting ourselves ready to travel to Abyssinia, جَاءَنِي عُمَرُ بْنُ الْخَطَّابِ وَأَنَا عَلَىٰ بَعِيرِ نُرِيدُ أَنَّ نَتَوَجَّهِ Umar al-Khattab came to me when I was riding my riding animal. I was on my riding the camel. He came to me, he approached me. فَقَالْ أَيْنْ أَيْنَ يَا أُمَّ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ Where are you going to? Where are you traveling to? فَقُلْتُ لَهُ آذَيْتُمُونَا فِي دِينَنَا I said, فِي دِينِنَا I said to him, you guys made it hard for us to practice our religion. You inflicted harm on us because we practice our religion. فَنَذْهَبُ فِي أَرْضِ اللَّهِ حَيْثُ لَا نُؤْذَى فِي عِبَادَةِ اللَّهِ So we go into another land because land belongs to Allah. We go into another land where we will not be harmed because of practicing our religion. Then she says, وَاللَّهِ لَنَخْرُجَنَّ مِنْ أَرْضٍ إِلَىٰ أَرْضِ اللَّهِ Wallahi, we shall leave this land to another land that belongs to Allah. إِذْ آذَيْتُمُونَ وَقَهَرْتُمُونَ حَتَّى يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ لَنَا مَخْرَجًا Because you guys have harmed us, you made it hard for us, until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us a way out. Then she says, وَرَأَيْتُ لَهُ رِقَّةً لَمْ أَكُنْ أَرَاهَا She says, I saw some softness in him that I'm not used to. That's not Umar ibn Khattab. He shows some sympathy, some soft side of who he is. ثُمَّ صَرَفْ وَقَدْ أَحْزَنَهُ خُرُوجُنَا Then he left, he turned away, and I could see this sadness that he was sad because we were leaving. Then she says, ثُمَّ ذَهَبْ He went. فَجَاءَ زَوْجِي عَامِرُ بْنُ رَبِيعَ My husband came. Now he's done with his business. Now we're ready to set off. فَأَخْبَرْتُهُ بِمَا رَأَيْتُ مِنْ رِقَّةِ عُمَرَ بْنِ الْخَطَّابِ So I told him the softness and the sympathy I saw from Umar ibn al-Khattab. فَقَالْ تَرْجِينَ يُسْلِمْ So he said to her, Do you have hope that he might become a Muslim? Like, obviously he's saying this sarcastically. فَقُلْتُ نَعَمْ I said, yes. قَالَ So he said, فَوَاللَّهِ لَا يُسْلِمْ حَتَّى يُسْلِمَ حِمَارُ الْخَطَّابِ He said to her, Wallah, like the donkey of his father would become a Muslim and he would not. Okay? So simply, basically, it's impossible for Umar al-Khattab to become Muslim. See how harsh, aggressive he was? Yet, the Prophet made dua, oh Allah, give victory to Islam by means of one of these two people. So sometimes we let our immediate reality uh, you know, block our vision or give us or take away all the hope. But with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no despair. There is no despair. Things change drastically in unexpected ways. We have to recognize that our assessment of situations is very limited because our minds are limited. Allah could turn things upside down in a blink of an eye. Things could completely change. You don't know. You don't know. So this is why we should always put our trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and put our hope in Allah and expect the best from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And <clears throat> So these people moved and they started traveling. Some of these early Muslims started traveling to Abyssinia. And there was a good number of them. This was the first immigration to Abyssinia. And they gathered there in Abyssinia and they started actually living. So they were free to practice their religion, practice their Islam. Now, 
who was left there, the Prophet and a small number of the early Muslims. One day these leaders of Mecca, specifically the seven that we mentioned, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, Abu Jahl, Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayyid, Al-Walid ibn Utbah, and others, they were gathering very close to Al-Kaaba. And they started, they brought up the, the, the conversation about the Prophet They said, we haven't been patient with anyone in our history like we have been patient with Muhammad. He disgraced our forefathers. He insulted our gods. And he has created division among us here in Mecca. So he has brought a very you know, huge affair and we have been very patient with him. We should have you know, dealt with him long ago. While they were having this conversation, the Prophet ﷺ comes and he comes to the Kaaba and he's making tawaf. So he makes the first round. When he was on the side where they were sitting, they insulted him. They were cussing him. He looks at them and you can see the hatred in his face, but he keeps going. Second circle of tawaf, they do the same. They insult him. He turns to them. He dislikes it, but he keeps moving. He keeps making his tawaf. Third round, he's passing by them. They insult him again. And these are the leaders. You know, this is something that's done by what? Foolish people in a society, right? But these are the leaders. These are the leaders. So third time, they insult him again. He looks at them and he says, Wallahi ya Quraysh. And he says like this. He says, Allah, people of Quraysh, I've come to you with slaughter. What does that mean? That means you guys are taking it. I've, I've come to you with the truth and you guys are insisting to fight against it until you end up killing yourselves or getting yourselves killed. That's what you guys are doing. You're playing with fire. When they heard this, they were overtaken by panic, by fear. Straight away. So they started saying to, the, some of them started saying to the Prophet take it easy, take it easy. You know, man, it's okay, it's okay. Just keep going, keep going. Keep. So now they wanted to attack him first, insult him. And now they're just, oh, just please go. Please go. We don't want to get into this. So the Prophet keeps going and he moves on. So <clears throat> the following day, they gather again. The same crew. And they said, okay, yesterday, like we said, you know, we've never been patient with anyone like Muhammad. And we said, we have to deal with him. When he came, he just said one word. He gave us a threat. And you all guys backed up. So none of you is really serious. So this time they said, okay, we're not going to give it to him again. No opportunity again. We're going to show him the real thing. The Prophet ﷺ comes. He's coming to Al-Kaaba, he wants to make tawaf. Before he comes to Al-Kaaba, they jump on him. They grab him from his collar. Here, they try to strangle him. They all gang upon him. All gang, he's by himself. And then they said to him, You are the one who insults our gods? He says, Naam. He says, Yes, I am. Because at the beginning of the da'wah, by the way, the Prophet ﷺ used to insult their gods. The st statues these idols they, they, they don't eat they don't drink they don't speak they're just statues they're stone or metal 
So why do you worship something that doesn't even have ben cannot give benefit or harm even to itself? You're worshiping these things. And the Prophet would speak bad about these idols. So they took offense. So they said, you insult our gods. He said, yes. They said, you insult our way of living. He said, yes, indeed, I am the one who does this. Obviously, they were saying this in an intimidating way because they were bullying him at this moment. And now they jumped on him and they really started physically attacking him. This moment, Abu Bakr comes in and he starts pushing them away from the Prophet ﷺ. He holds the Prophet ﷺ in his arms to protect him from them, to be a shield around the Prophet ﷺ. And he says to them, أَتَقْتُلُونَ رَجُلًا أَنْ يَقُولَ رَبِّيَ اللَّهِ وَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ Are you murdering a man? Are you attacking a man trying to kill him? Just because he is saying to you, worship your Lord alone, worship Allah alone, and he's brought you enough signs. That's why you want to kill him? So that happened, this thing happened a few times. And one of the narrations, historical narrations, there's some weakness in it, but it's a historical narration, so it's acceptable in this context. Uh, they, the Prophet ﷺ was making, was praying two rak'ah. Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt, one of these seven people, he goes to the Prophet ﷺ when he was in sujood, he grabs him from behind. And he tightens his collar upon, around his neck and the Prophet ﷺ almost, you know, passes out. And at that moment Abu Bakr jumps, rushes into the scene and he pushes Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayt away. And they gang upon him, upon the Prophet ﷺ, and they want to, want to physically attack the Prophet ﷺ. Abu Bakr pushes them away. They catch Abu Bakr and they start beating him. In one of the narrations, one person takes off his shoes. And the bottom of his shoes, the sole of his shoes, was made of hard material. And he starts smacking Abu Bakr on his face. Hardly. Until... The narration goes that the face of Abu Bakr lost all features. It was swollen. No, it could, couldn't tell any facial features on the face of Abu Bakr for a few days. To protect the Prophet So it was, that was some kind of a, a common occurrence. Imagine, how can you live in such a negative situation, or such a negative environment, dealing with such people? Yet the Prophet put up with all of this. And the Prophet would still go to these people and invite them to Islam. Still invite them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tell them to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so on and so forth. And make dua for them. <clears throat> One day the Prophet was sort of uh, received a lot of bad mistreatment from the people of Quraysh. And he was with Abu Bakr. So they decide to go out to the outskirts of Mecca or outside of Mecca just to catch their breath and take a break. So they go there and they find a young man, a young man with some sheep. So they approach this man and they were thirsty, they were tired. So Abu Bakr asks this man, he says, do you have, can you give us any milk? He says, I can't give you any milk because this is not my sheep. I'm just a worker and I don't have the right to give you milk. The Prophet likes this. He likes this honesty and this trustworthiness from this man. So he's an honest person. So Abu Bakr says, okay, do you have, or the Prophet says, do you have a small young sheep that is still a virgin, has never been pregnant before? Because obviously it doesn't have milk. He says, yes. He says, okay, can we just, uh, can you show it to us? 
So yes, indeed. So the Prophet gets hold of it and he recites some Quran on it. And then obviously Abu Bakr starts milking it and there's a lot of milk. Now this young man is observing this in amazement. Something is never seen before. But he likes the recitation of the Prophet wasallam. So they, were, they, they drank the milk, they were done, then the Prophet recites on it again and it goes back no, to, as it was before. No milk, normal small sheep. So this young man says to the Prophet Sallallahu Teach me from these, this goodly, these goodly words, these beautiful words that you just were reciting, Qur'an. So the Prophet Sallallahu says to him, إِنَّكَ غُلَامٌ مُعَلَّمٌ You have a head, you're a young man who has a head for knowledge. You have a head for knowledge. Okay, you have a gift to learn and study and learn. So this young man, he says, فَأَخَذْتُ مِنْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أو أَخَذْتُ مِنْ فِيهِ أو مِنْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم سَبْعِينَ سُورَةً مَا يُنَازِعُنِي فِيهَا أَحَدٍ He said, I took from the mouth of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم directly 70 of the surahs of the Qur'an. I took them individually. There was no one else there. There was no one else there. There's a beautiful story. There is weakness in it as well. But these are, we say, historical narrations. That when the Prophet ﷺ first received Surah Al-An'am, uh, and some of the uh, Mufassireen, the scholars of Tafsir, they, they are of the opinion that Surah Al-An'am was revealed in one go. You know, a lot of the Surahs in the Quran were, re were revealed as parchments, small numbers of verses here and there and so on and so forth. But some of the Mufassirin believe that Surah Al-An'am was revealed all at once. Surah Al-An'am, you're talking about 23 pages. Yeah, roughly 23 pages. And it's not easy. The words there are majestic in Surah Al-An'am. The words are majestic. And Surah Al-An'am is not an easy uh, surah as well to memorize, by the way. It's not an easy surah to memorize. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said to the companions, Today, a surah was revealed to me. Then he recites it, uh, recites the full surah to the companions. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud is there listening. Upon finishing, when the Prophet finishes, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud says to the Prophet, Shall I recite it back to you? He goes on and he recites the whole surah completely. The whole surah completely. So that shows as well that. Goes with the in line with the hadith here where the Prophet says, You're a young man who has a head for knowledge, learning. So, who's this? Abdullah bin Mas'ud, this young man, this young shepherd. He's an insignificant person to the people of Mecca, right? He's a poor person, young man, not from the like the elite of Quraysh. No one cares about him, but in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's far greater than anyone else. One day in Medina. Uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, by the way, was a very extremely thin, very slim, like he almost had no flesh in his body, it was just bone and skin. So he climbs on one of the date trees. Some of the companions see him, they see his shin bones, and basically almost there's no muscles, there's just bones. They're very tiny and small, they're like sticks. So some of them just laughed. So the Prophet says, you laugh at his, at his legs. He says, Wallahi, his legs are heavier on the Day of Judgment and bigger on the Day of Judgment than the Mount of Uhud. 
So that shows basically the weight of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. The weight of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu is one of the most learned among the companions radiallahu anhum. So again, it shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at difficult times, Allah sends, or Allah makes good things happen. Allah makes good things happen even at difficult times. When people are rejecting the Prophet sallallahu and opposing him, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings this man. Very simple man, considered to be insignificant, yet he becomes a great asset for Islam later on. A lot of the knowledge from the Prophet sallallahu was maintained and preserved through Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. A lot of the knowledge of the Quran was preserved and handed down by or through Abdullah ibn Mas'ud The whole Madrasat al-Iraq, the whole school of fiqh and knowledge in Iraq is based on the fiqh of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. The whole of it. All of it was based, all the tabi'een in Iraq were predominantly the students of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. So he had a great impact. Radiallahu anhu. So yes, a lot of the Muslims were weaker ones, and this is why uh, Abu Jahl, oh no, Abu Sufyan, Abu Sufyan, when he travelled to to the Byzant, uh, land of the lands of Byzantines, and he met their king, the king asked him about the prophet, the person who claims to be prophet. One of the questions he asks him, and that's a beautiful story, but there's so many lessons in it, but it's a long one. He says to him, who are his followers? Who are the ones who followed him? Abu Sufyan says what? He says, Al-Fuqara al-Du'afa. The ones who follow him are the poor, weaker ones. So what does the king respond to him? Because he has knowledge of the scripture. These are Christians. He says, وَهَكَذَا أَتْبَعُ الرُّسُلُ And he says, these are the followers of the messengers. The messengers were always followed by these people. So, yes, a lot of the followers of the Prophet ﷺ, most of them predominantly were the weaker ones. Yet, things sometimes change. Uh, <coughs> there was the uh, uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Hamza. Hamza. Hamza was known to be amongst the bravest in Mecca. Among the bravest in Mecca, he was like a class A knight, a warrior. No one could compete with someone like Hamza. Hamza عنه, was a fan of hunt. So he would go out of Mecca and go for hunt for days. And then he would come back. And with all of these travels and journeys, he had a lot of adventures, a lot of hardships, a lot of... Uh, beautiful intriguing stories so he would usually he had developed a habit where as soon as he comes back to Mecca he would come to around Al-Kaaba where these leaders of Mecca uh, usually gather and he would sit with them and share some of his stories with them and they would love that they would love this so they used to look forward to that one day upon coming and this is by the way this is a weak narration as a hadith this story specifically is a weak narration as a hadith, yet it's mentioned in the books of the Sirah. And we say in Sirah, the scholars are of the opinion that if there are historical narrations that are weak in terms of science of hadith, but they are historical narrations, and they are in line with the general you know, uh, parameters of the Sirah of the Prophet ﷺ, and they do not like establish anything religious, so any aqidah or any fiqh, we can still accept them. That's the general approach of the scholars when it comes to the Sirah. 
So Hamza comes, walks into Mecca. There's a woman who meets him. She says, and he was obviously, Hamza was a very proud man as well. So she says to him, you, you're walking, you know, with so much pride when your nephew was just humiliated by <laughs> Abu Jahl. And he said, what is this? She, sa she said, yes, he was humiliated. He was mistreated now in front of everyone by Abu Jahl, Amr ibn Hisham. So obviously this, this does something to the psyche of Hamza radiallahu anhu. So he walks, he goes to that gathering as usual. And he stands in front of them. And they were talking and laughing. And so he, they see him. And obviously they're waiting for his stories. As usual, he starts telling them some of his stories and adventures. And he has his bow in his hand. So he usually he had the habit as the narration goes. He used to put his bow and sort of recline on it when he was speaking. Like a stick. He would take it like a stick and depend on it as he was speaking. And uh, it would give him a good posture to speak to them. So he was speaking and they were engaged and mesmerized by his adventures. At one moment, he holds his bow and he smacks Abu Jahl right on, in the middle of his head. And you know, have, uh, anyone who's done some archery, if you see a bow, it's made of s solid wood. Solid wood. And to smack someone on the middle of their head with something like this, it would definitely cause some kind of harm to them. So he smacks Abu Jahl. And Abu Jahl is who? One of the main leaders in Mecca. He smacks him right on the middle of his head. And he says, you... Uh, he says, basically, you do harm to my nephew, I'll teach you a lesson. You don't mess with him. You don't mess with him. And if you are ridiculing him or attacking him because of his religion, I want you to know that I am upon his religion and I follow his religion. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. So now the people of Quraysh, what? You know what's going on? They said they started saying to Hamza because they basically they said yeah, his kunya was Abu Amara, Abu Amara. That's the kunya of Hamza. So Hamza strikes Abu Jahl then he says خُذْهَا بِالْقَوْسِ وَأُخْرَى بِالسَّيْفِ He says take it with my bow and next time you do it it will not be with my bow it will be with my sword so that means next time you do that I'll kill you with my sword so they said قَالُوا يَا أَبَا عَمَارَ إِنَّهُ سَبَّ آلِهَتَنَا they said oh Abu, Abu Amara or Hamza he was insulting our guides and وَأَنْتَ أَفْضَلُ مِنْهُ you are better than him Look at the evil words, even say, like, you are better than Muhammad. Like, very, like, I see this as a very low kind of approach to speak to him about his nephew like this, about the Prophet And he says, even if you are, and even though you are better than him, we would not accept this from you. But he still, he said, here it is, I'm a Muslim, I'm one of his followers. And literally, he follows the Prophet he follows the Prophet This basically causes the people of Quraysh to start re-evaluating the situation. Now we thought it was only Bilal, Khabbab ibn al-Arat, Ammar ibn Yasir, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Like, these are the weaker ones. But now we're talking about Hamza. These are the, the core uh, youth of Mecca. These are the future of Mecca. Uh, that's really serious now. It's getting really serious. 
So this is why after this, they actually resort to another approach with the Prophet So they actually approach the Prophet differently this time. They decide to send a man for the first time to make negotiations. Negotiations with the Prophet Maybe he could compromise. Maybe he could compromise on certain things. So inshallah, uh, next week we will talk about that negotiation and how the Prophet responded. There's a beautiful way the Prophet handled that negotiation and he gave a very beautiful response. So inshallah, we will start with this next week inshallah in the halaqah. We have some time for a few questions. Any questions? Questions? Yes. The story of Hamza radiallahu anhu is it authentic? Okay, we didn't speak about this in detail, but probably we need to point that out. <coughs> the scholars of hadith have strict measures to accept a hadith. And these measures are really dynamic and strict and very accurate. It's a beautiful science. So, uh, we apply these to a hadith when they establish aqeedah, fiqh, or anything about Islam. Yet, a lot of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, a great deal of it, was not narrated through uh, chains of narration. They were just accounts. They were just accounts. So they were handed down verbally from one person to the other and among the companions and among the, their children and among the tabi'een and so on and so forth. They started to document them towards the end of the first century. Towards the end of the first century, they started to document some of them. Okay, some of the uh, the life events in the and uh, or the events in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And the first complete book that came about this, which was about a hundred and more than a hundred years after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, it was Maghazi ibn Ishaq, the book of Ibn Ishaq. It's a big book documenting the narrations about the life of the Prophet ﷺ that were taken from the companions through the tabi'een. They were documented. The, the book is lost. Uh, I think it, it's, four, it's four, I think it's four uh, volumes, the original form. We, what we have now is one volume and a little bit. That's the, that's the only manuscripts they managed to find. But luckily, this book was summarized by Ibn Hisham in his Sirah, Sirat Ibn Hisham. So Ibn Hisham summarized this book nicely, and Sirat Ibn Hisham has been preserved. So we have manuscripts for it, and it's available. It's available. So the scholars have always, like Ibn Kathir, all the historians, when they, the Imam al-Dhahabi, when they wrote, and the Sirah al-Halabiyya, when they wrote about Antabaqat ibn Sa'd, when he spoke about the life of the Prophet they, they did not take the approach of uh, the scholars of hadith. Why? Because the companions never bothered about, and the tabi'in never bothered about documenting to a great extent the events, as much as they paid attention to the rulings and to the aqeedah. So this is why the scholars are of the opinion, it's almost a unanimous agreement among the scholars, that when it comes to the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, we don't have to have authentic narrations. Okay, we don't have to have authentic narrations. If we have historical narrations where there are gaps in the chains of narration, that's fine with some conditions. First, these narrations do not establish a fiqh ruling, ruling in fiqh, 
halal or haram or something salah should be done in this way or a certain act of worship and done, done that way that's number one number two they do not have any issue of aqidah they do not establish aqidah something of the un- matters of the unseen and three they do not these narrations do not contradict the uh, the flow of the seerah as it happens in the authentic ahadith so it does not contradict them so if we have a story in the seerah historical narration that goes against the narration about the life of the prophet about an event in the life of the prophet that's in sahih al-bukhari it goes against it no we discard this we leave it completely okay so these are the general three conditions there there are a bit more conditions which are more detailed but these are the main conditions so yes in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, there are a lot of historical narrations. They don't necessarily stand uh, the the rigorous uh, criteria of the hadith narrations, but they still are accepted, and they paint a good image of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Okay, so that's how we deal with them. Wa'iyak. The women, yes, we mentioned that last week. And that was Ummu Jamil, the wife of Abu Lahab. said so she was amongst the worst. She was amongst the worst towards the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She was very bad. She was uh, like, especially verbally, very abusive. Yes. Okay. Questions? Questions? Okay, no questions? Okay, alhamdulillah. Good, sounds good. But inshallah, we will meet next week. Same time. It will be after Maghrib. And by the way, inshallah, the first Friday of every month, the first Friday of every month, after the halaqa, we'll have a potluck. We'll have a potluck. Okay? So the first Friday of every month, obviously October is not gone now, so we're going to start November. So November, inshallah, December, inshallah, the first Friday of every month, there will be a potluck. Inshallah. So everyone is invited to bring different different type of food, different type of cuisine. I think it's a good socialization because we need this as a Muslim, as Muslims as well to strengthen the ties among ourselves. It, it creates a friendly kind of environment, and some Subhanallah. For some reason, people socialize more when there is food. <laughs> people sort of become more at ease when there is food. So it's good to offer people different types of food. Whatever is available, whatever we have at home, you want to make something special for that. It's just once a month. I think, really, I've seen, I've, seen this, I've seen this work in very good ways in a lot of communities. So it brings people together. You'll get to know new people. You get to converse and speak and talk about different things with different brothers. So it's a good thing actually to have. So the first Friday of every month, inshallah, after the Friday halaqa, we will have a potluck. Everyone is invited. And everyone is invited to bring as well whatever food they can bring. Jazakumullah khair. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nabi Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam.